Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Obviously, we enjoy Stephen King around these parts. We also enjoy lots of other seminal works of genre. We've covered books by Shirley Jackson, William Golding, and Ray Bradbury, among others, in our Dance Macabre series. Uh, but one of the biggest questions we get from you, listeners, is who are the new names? Who are putting out the books that I should be reading now? Well, our latest bi-monthly series, that's once every two months. Uh, We'll be talking to a writer we like, a current writer, about a book they've just released that we also like. We're kicking off our first installment with a bang. Today, Mel and I are sharing our interview with John Darneal, who, in addition to being the lead singer of the Mountain Goats, a band I have seen 15 times in concert, 16 in May, is also an accomplished novelist. In January, he released Devil House, his third book. It's a sprawling, surprising, structurally clever story about a true crime writer who shacks up in the old remodeled porn store where once upon a time, a pair of grisly murders occurred. Mel, your thoughts on Devil House? Hello, this is Mel, Monster X, Castle. And Mm -hmm. I just loved this book. I loved it so much that I put it in a package that I had been planning to send to a friend in another state, in addition to a couple other gifts that I was just sending anyway. Like, it's the kind of book that I really need to talk about with people. It doesn't It doesn't <laughs> quite feel like it's fair that John Darnell should be this good <laughs> at writing these books because he's so accomplished already. And I do feel, you know, I, I'm not as familiar with the mountain goats as Randall is. But when I listened to them, what I, my foremost thought was, oh, I need to see how this guy writes. And yeah, uh, it did. It really did not disappoint. The structure of the book is something unpredictable, but also patterned in a really thought through way. It yeah. treats true crime from a perspective that is, I mean, refreshing almost sounds trite for how deep this book goes. Like, we start with someone who already has an incredibly progressive view comparatively on true crime. Being a true crime writer himself, he thinks of himself as someone who's sort of trying to set the record straight, which is a great way to start just because I feel like we've sort of already heard all the arguments, right? Like if if you're familiar with the genre, if you're someone who listens to podcasts about true crime or just true crime podcasts, they they've they've gotten a lot of rightful flack lately. And I feel like this book is the next step in the conversation. Like it's not Mm -hmm. just repeating everything you've already heard. It, it is just immersive with emotion. It, one of uh, Laura Van, um, Laura Vandenberg often, often says that plot can happen on the level of thought. And I feel that this book embodies that concept really well. Mm. Um, Yeah. Plot doesn't have to be these crazy A then B happenings. It can happen on an incredibly internal emotional level. And this is gripping on that level, which I just feel is such a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to pull off. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I love that. And for me, um, I agree with everything you said. For me, the book is such a demonstration, too, of Darnielle's, I think, like, tremendous sense of empathy. Mm-hmm. And this is something that's always stood out in his music. His songs, like, they've always exuded empathy. He has this song called Grendel's Mother that's about uh, the story Beowulf, obviously. And when I was younger, I remember I always identified more with Grendel and Grendel's mother because Beowulf seemed like kind of a dick. And this song kind of, uh, you know, takes on the uh, the mind of, of Grendel's mother. And it's very much sings about wanting revenge on Beowulf for killing her son. And there's these beautiful evocative lyrics about like uh, killing Beowulf and carrying him home in her teeth and then uh, burning Grendel on like a pyre. And uh, and it's it's just such gorgeous stuff. And he loves to identify with villains or people that society has deemed villains. He writes a lot about drug addicts. He writes a lot about suicidal people. He writes a lot about unsavory figures from pop culture. Um, And that's something that I've just always, always, always loved about his stuff. And so in this book, we get this this portrait about how inevitably whenever you write about something that really happened and you try to form a narrative out of it, you know, inevitably you're going to be uh, hurting someone and also benefiting someone. And that's something he talks about in this interview specifically. And um, this interview is really wild because his mind moves at a clip that is uh, truly astounding, which I think if you've listened to his music, that's something that would resonate with you. Uh, yeah, Mel, not after to self-promote, this- but you should listen to this interview like five times to get to get every <laughs> kernel that he has to share. He was so, yeah. um, we are so grateful that he took the time to talk to us. Yeah, Mel has this um had this text to me right after we talked and she's like, "How does he live with that brain?" <laughs> so, I guess like that's something that you that we took from this interview, maybe you will too. Um but yeah, stay tuned. We'll be back in 2 months. We'll be talking to another writer who's got something coming out that we're excited about and we hope you dig it. And if you have any ideas for people you think we should talk to, um please share. We love that. Yeah, we're open to it. So, uh thanks for listening so much and enjoy the interview. Hello, John. What's happening, man? Hey, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Sure, but I'll be pacing while we talk. I normally I would be on my laptop, but uh, it was it's been long past time to replace that, and the replacement came, and I went directly into Migration Assistant to move all my data over. So now it's tied up. So. <laughs> That's totally fine. So just to uh, let you know, we're a Stephen King podcast. We've been doing this, yeah, for since about 2017 or so. And the show's very much gone beyond Stephen King in a lot of ways. We love to talk about horror. We love to talk about uh, books and things of that nature. We've interviewed a lot of different people. And yeah, we kind of are launching a fun little series um, focusing on more modern horror authors. And uh, yeah, so you seemed like a great person to talk to. So this being a Stephen King podcast, we thought it best to note that you referenced the original Salem's Lot miniseries in this book. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. So are you are you a fan of that book or is it just a uh, miniseries only for you? I have never gotten to the book, though it's on my list. Uh, the, the, the original series one is, uh, as far as I know, I feel like the word is it's considered one of the better Stephen King adaptations. Um, I have seen it on the screen, actually. I've seen it screened. Um, and, uh, and that's something you can do now, right? You can actually see the original May series on a big screen. Yeah. Uh, it's really good. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether it's one of the ones he does or doesn't like, cause I know he doesn't like the Kubrick shining. <laughs> He's so fickle. We have, we have to agree to disagree on that. I mean, uh, but, uh, but I also, I get it, you know, none of my stuff has been turned into films yet, but like every time the prospect of that is looming, I have to sit there and go, you know what? 
you got to let somebody else take your vision and do their thing with it when this happens. You know, it's not, yeah. you know, it's not going to be the book because only books are books, right? Only books can be books because yeah. books are the best thing, right? So, but, uh, but yeah, so I've used that, but also a band called Shroud Eater um, uh, sampled some of the uh, Salem's Lot dialogue for a song at one point. Uh -huh. And it's incredibly effective. And it got me thinking about this. It's probably 10 years ago now, but it feels like five <laughs> because of COVID time. But uh, but yeah, so so samples from a lot of Stephen King movies are sort of a staple of, of heavy metal, you know, uh, that's pretty common. There's a lot of really good dialogue, especially like right at jump scare moments and stuff like that. And uh, although I, I, I like to think of King stuff as being sort of above the standard jump scare, even though the closing scene of Carrie yeah. is kind of Classic. ground zero for jump scares right so, so but but i mean i feel, I feel like I, i'm rambling but but i feel like the jump scare is sort of pretty degraded right now where you see it coming you know you're about to get jump scared and so forth it's kind of like not interesting anymore but uh yeah but you feel but anyway. played i don't it feels yeah i mean so manipulative like, i mean i guess it is sort of like it's sort of like like anything else it when done well it's great and when mm -hmm. done badly it's cheap you know so but uh but at any rate, uh, uh, yeah, the, a lot of the the reveal moments from those movies make for good samples on metal records. And I and I've in Shroud Eater, I heard this thing of of the master right in Salem's Lot that was like, oh my god, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's uh, I think I think King enjoys that adaptation of Salem's Lot. They're doing a new one that's supposed to come out later this year, and the guy who is behind that I think is is pretty. Uh, 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 responsible for a lot of the jump scares I think we're saying aren't as effective so uh, I mean my beef mainly with with Hollywood and TV almost entirely is it like you know somebody like Sissy Spacek would not be able to get a job now because right. the base level for sort of very traditional beauty which I want to put scare quotes around is so accepted that if you if you're going to be on the screen you have to have been starving yourself for a long time and 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 meet so many really boring and trad conventions of what looks good to please the kind of people who like to think about that, you know, uh, that I'm just not interested in looking at any of those people. You know? Especially <laughs> interesting well. in horror where it's like ugliness is supposed to be or anything that is outside of the norm is supposed to be. Well, so exactly. Central. And in King's books in the dead zone, the physical descriptions of the people make it very plain that they're real people. It's even yeah. the politicians, right? The one politician who's sort of supposed to be uh, charismatic we meet him first in a very human place, right? Mm -hmm. He's not a JFK politician, which is now the norm, right? So you get somebody, Beto O'Rourke gets a little bit of juice in part because they know he's going to look good on camera. So they want to say this guy, right? And, uh, and all that stuff. I mean, I, I think a lot about the tyranny of the camera uh, in our present age, you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, so when I hear a movie is being remade, I go, well, we're not going to get what Stephen King largely, one reason I think successful is because you recognize the people in his books, right? As people in, in Cujo, right? Uh, the marriage scenes are just devastatingly realistic if you oh. come from a working class home. It's such a bleak, you're... sad book. People... Oh yeah, no, I, I understand that he doesn't remember writing it. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. This reminds me of the tweet that I retweeted the other day that's like, movies were better when actors looked a little busted, just a little busted. Like people <laughs> <should> just... <laughs> it, it, and, when the, and when the house doesn't look like you couldn't afford to live in it, I, this is stuff I think about all the time uh, in, in books and everything. It's like, I don't, even though like I'm reading Tolstoy now and like one of the, even though for his time he's democratizing, but all these people are princes, you know? 
well, I don't know anything about a prince's world. <laughs> it's, like, it's not really relatable. It, it's parts also as genius that you can make that relatable. But uh, but for the most part, when I'm reading books, one reason the 19th century for the large part is blurred to me is like, all these people were born with money. I don't relate to them. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. So yeah, you had mentioned that you read Cujo and Dead Zone recently. What was it that drew you to those books? So John Hodgman uh, told me to read Cujo. He, yeah. he, I think he had just read it recently. And he said, you should read this book. It's a mean book, right? It's really a mean book and, and worth worth reading just to sort of reflect, reflect on the craft. And one of the things about Stephen King is I sort of feel like his, and I'm not the first person to make this observation, that he's analogous to Charles Dickens, right? Mm -hmm. That he's somebody who is widely read, right? Uh, who anybody who likes reading can enjoy a Stephen King book. Right. But there's a lot of craft in his work. Right. There's a lot of uh, there's big themes being addressed in, in ways that don't draw attention to themselves. Right. Uh, which is great. You know, which is like I'm I tend to read highfalutin literature. Like I like to read stuff that slows me down and demands a lot of me. But that doesn't mean I don't also enjoy a ripping yarn. Right. Which is what yeah. he does. And he gets the, the best of both worlds because he's always, you know, in it he's, he's very much addressing some very present cultural themes in ways that any reader who's just enjoying the story can't miss also that this is going on. And it's very pleasant, you know, to, to sort of be taken seriously as a grown up reader in that way. Right. And that's sort of his, his deal. Um, and so Hodgman, I think is, uh, is an artist uh, in a similar zone, you know, that he's doing something that that's got some real depth to it. Uh, but it's also entertainment that hopefully you can also just, you know, that you can sort of get on it at, at, at a number of levels. Right. And that's kind of a, you know, when you think abstractly about the nature of creative work, uh, that's one of the divisions that's interesting to think about is like, are you making small entertainments that are there to just entertain? And that's noble too. Or are you trying to write deep stuff that slows somebody down and makes them contemplate stuff? Or do you want to try and do both, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's a million ways. To, it's not, these are not like the three divisions as I think of them or anything, but but those, these are some ways you can think about it. And one of the neat things about Stephen King is, is that like Hodgman, I think he occupies both of those realms in a really great way you know that's really you know i think a lot of people try to do this commentators try to do this right that they want to they want to tell you that they're doing something heavy right but at the same time they want to make sure nobody misses it because they're monetizing what they do most commentators i find really unpersuasive at this right i don't mm -hmm. care to hear what they have to say if they're not willing to give their subjects you know the time and depth necessary to address serious themes right, right. but i think paradoxically maybe with entertainers it's kind of great that you can do both right uh some songwriters are good at this too um but anyway yeah so getting the recommendations from Hodgman I, okay I'll try that and that's a shocking book you know that's a that's mm -hmm. a book that does the does the unthinkable uh at the end you know and and the movie was unable <laughs> to follow suit commit to it yeah. uh, um so growing up I know you love genre growing up like it's pretty evident in your in your music and in you know your writing uh was there yeah. any Stephen King sort of like iconic images that perhaps you didn't uh watch the movies or something but something that maybe permeated your uh soul a little bit like I think for a lot of people like the Shining Twins would represent that from Kubrick's movie I actually didn't see the Shining until late I didn't see it when it was new I actually um this is kind of funny I went and stayed uh, in the Crater Lake Lodge where it was filmed, yeah. right? Because I had a girlfriend who was working the summer season there, but I hadn't seen the movie. I didn't, they said, oh, The Shining was shot. You'll recognize the road. I was like, nope, I haven't seen the movie. So, <laughs> so I didn't recognize any of it. I didn't, I didn't go to the maze or anything, um, but uh, I didn't see it until much, much later, but I had stayed there. Uh, 
but I mean, for me, it's, it's, uh, uh, I mean, the vision of Carrie, I'm a metal guy, right? Carrie at the dance, right? Uh, in all her glory is an extraordinarily metal moment, right? I mean, it's one of the most, and, and, and all the people that she's victimizing look like they listen to weak metal. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, and, uh, and so that's a big one. The poster for The Shining, um, God, what, what else is, there's, there's another, a lot of the posters, like the poster for Monkey Shines, the poster for Maximum Overdrive, all those things are like a, a big part of my visual field uh, yeah. when I'm younger. But I mean, the big one for me, like because I'm, I'm 54, I'm 55 next week, right? So I was around when Stephen King was a new horror writer. I was a kid, but I was there for his rise, right? And, and I was into genre fiction. I started when I was like 10, so just as he's coming up, uh, I guess Carrie is 76, right? Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think so. So I'm nine, right? So I'm hearing and reading about this. I was a precocious kid as far as reading the paper and we had the Los Angeles Times. So I'd be reading the Sunday book review. I'm hearing this name and I already know I'm kind of interested in horror in part because I sort of, I, I wonder whether I hate it. When I was a kid, I was like, maybe mm. I'm against it. I was very mm -hmm. like that, you know? But, uh, uh, but yeah, so at some point, fairly early on i saw carrie and uh and that last scene i mean <laughs> that thing is uh that's a formative thing to see as a child not there's several scenes in the in that movie that are very you know the when they go to to the pigs I, man that yeah. one to me is one of the hardest because the mallet swings and then it cuts away right but yeah. but that's a really heavy scene um and travolta in that is so he was so popular at that point you know yeah. and uh uh, and now, you know, now he's an established author, but it was kind of intense to have him playing a guy who was kind of evil, but but really mundane in the evil. Mm -hmm. you know, now if they give John Travolta an evil role, then, then he's super evil. Oh, the actual truth of his evil is this great rotting, festering thing inside him. But like, <laughs> but King's evil isn't like that. Among Small people. town it's, evil. Yeah, yeah know, it's the real thing. The thing that actually is going to hurt somebody. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, he writes bullies so well, you know, like, uh, and kind of Travolta and Chris, um, you know, the woman who plays Chris in that movie, they're kind of the earliest of King's bullies. And he would go on and like It and Christine and yeah. uh, Under the Dome and a lot of these other books. He writes bullies just so incredibly well. And yeah, the, and I think it's because he can capture the the malevolence of just, you know, chucking a rock at somebody's head while pairing that with, you know, the uh, clown from outer space. That's it. Well, having a bully That's is really cool. terrible. And the thing is, I think, I think he comes along. I don't, I don't know where the discourse is about Stephen King and just where he hits historically as far as the rise of, uh, of feminism goes, which I think when you talk about bullying culture and feminism, you're talking about similar things about expectations of masculinity, right. And, uh, and, and, and shifting gender roles. Right. And, you know, the world that I was a kid in was just coming out of suck it up. You know, it was like, mm. I mean, that phrase wasn't even extant, but the assumption was if you have a bully, you have to get tough and beat him up. Right. Yeah. You have to learn to fight back. Um, but I wasn't, I was, the world I'm coming out of is, is, is shit is shifting. You know, it's like, I ratted out my bully uh, in the, uh, in the seventh and eighth grade. And man, that was like so much better than beating him. Cause he hated that. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, uh, and, uh, and so, so yeah, so I think, uh, man, I, I lost, I think he's, he's toying with like a historical moment when bullies are sort of going to be regarded as, as uh, you know, with a colder eye than I think, you know, 
the bully in the 30s, that's a type. You, you see them in Steinbeck books and stuff, but, uh, but I don't think they're sort of regarded as this malevolent force so much as an expected presence. You know, they're in Dickens too. Right. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I'd love to pivot to Devil House a bit. I'm just so curious about your process, everything that went into this book. And I I just want to say I so appreciated how Gage is a conscientious true crime writer. That's where he starts, right? He's quote one of the good ones. Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, he, he that's his own that's his question to if himself, there is such a thing yeah right it's funny i was just saying to my wife i'm sitting here reading the paper uh at lunch or i say at lunch but i eat peanuts for lunch because i'm me so uh but uh but going through the the friday new york times and i find sarah lawrence college cult trial begins with violence fear sex and manipulation and three paragraphs in i'm like oh this story's for me <laughs> it's, like, it's a really brutal and horrible sounding story and like i'm going Aren't you the guy that your book is kind of calling out now? <laughs> you know, it's so, so, I mean, I hope it's a complex call out because I also don't, you know, I do come from the like, let us have our pleasures sort of feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you enjoy something and, and that enjoyment isn't hurting anybody, I don't think you really need to be judging yourself too harshly for it, you know. Uh, but I also believe in interrogating your own pleasures to some extent, you know, and, and figuring out where they where they come from and what they're about but yeah i mean it's like gage is born in part because when rather gage as he becomes because i don't i don't start writing with a with a didactic aim i just start writing a character and as as he becomes three-dimensional then questions arise and i'm always saying that i write to pose questions right so uh and i'm posing them to myself also but um but as I was shaping him, I'm drawing on as much experience as I can because that's the best way to make a character realistic. And when I was a young gothy type, being into true crime stuff, that went with the territories. Like you, right. you were into, you know, you almost had favorite serial killers. You had the ones who whose details you knew and could share. Mm -hmm. uh, in the pre-internet age, that was kind of currency, right? That if you right. knew about this stuff, it means you had had access to this or that book that had the details of, say, of Peter Curtin, right? The Vampire of Dusseldorf or... Um, you know, knowing about more obscure stuff, like knowing the specifics of Gacy before, before, basically before the book gets published on anything that sort of becomes the, the text for these murderers, having the, having done the reading, having sought out the newspaper stories gave you a sort of cultural cachet in some circles, you know, and I was in some of those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you have to reckon with what's going on now where everything is being sort of interrogated and questioned and there's like the debunking we're in the debunking phase now oh, yeah. and i feel like gage is is a little bit part of that and yeah well i mean that's the thing is like it always that's when you grow out of it which you generally do i mean the thing is i think it's harder to grow out of now because 
everything is so much more monetizable, right? It's like those, the guys writing those books generally weren't getting rich, you know, they were doing it for whatever reason, but it's a small gig and it was niche life. Well, now all the culture industries are very good at monetizing anything that, that, that can find general appeal. Nor is this the first time in history that true crime things have had a surge, right? There's this dates back to Dostoevsky, at least, you know, uh, that, uh, that, and there's actually an article about that in the Sunday New York Times book review, book review about a, a book about Dostoevsky's sources for crime and punishment. Um, but, uh, but there are surges of interest in this that probably have some fairly mundane socioeconomic and political connections to why it happens that people want to read about this stuff from time to time. And other times they don't, and they're more, uh, you know, maybe puritanical, maybe more just in, uh, curious about the moral effects of it, you know, mm-hmm. um, this isn't the first time that 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 this process has taken place, right? Um, I, as you may have noticed, I often lose track of the original question because I go on at length. What was the jumping off point there? There, there? there was no real question. I was just trying to, yeah, get your thoughts on Gage as a character. And I wanted to use that as a springboard to ask you about true crime and horror and the sort of difference in responsibility as a writer between the two. Like when you fictionalize something terrible, does that mean that you're more responsibly telling an awful story? How does the responsibility shift as more or less of it is fictionalized? Like this is a key concern of the book as well. Yeah. I mean, well, some of it is about just about the responsibility of of, of storytelling period, Mm -hmm. right? It's like when you choose to tell a story, any story, um, and this is a very old shtick of mine, but I still believe in it. um, You are imposing narrative and people are always talking about the narrative these days. It's one of my favorite things to fetch about, you know, but, uh, but, but narrative is a fiction, right? The, all narratives are, are fictions to some extent. That doesn't mean that when I say, well, here a harmful thing is being done, that, that that's just my narrative or something. Harm is demonstrable, right? Uh, but, but narratives themselves are a way that we understand the world, right? This is a John Didion line. We tell ourselves stories in order to live, right? And we do because we need them, right? It seems that as creatures, you have to have a story explaining how anything works because otherwise chaos is the rule and if chaos is the rule then we don't have any sort of thing to ground us and and help us to treat each other decently right so so there's that sense in which narrative serves a very religious role of making sure that you're telling a good story right but most stories are not that tidy and there's a lot of ways of telling any story right um and that's that's the thing that the more real people are in your story the greater your responsibility is to at least ask yourself, you know, I mean, I hate the way that the wrong sort of people have commandeered all these Latin phrases, but cui bono, <laughs> right? You know, to who's good, right? Is the story told, right? However, I want to say politically, whenever somebody raises cui bono these days, they usually don't have anything good in mind. It's conspiracy theory thinkers who like cui bono, but, but, uh, but, but it is a good question to be asking, you know, to what end am I telling this story? What, who benefits when I tell it? Right. Um, and uh, and and the flip side of who benefits is who suffers. Right. Um, and I mean, I think this is a, you find this if you're gossiping as you as you grow, you know, you say, well, even if even if this conversation doesn't ever leave this room, what are the effects of it in the world? What uh, the person with whom I'm gossiping, how does it how does it sort of affect somebody else? 
you know, yeah, you also have this with not telling stories, with chosen silences, with, with stuff that you you decide not stories you decide not to tell ostensibly to protect somebody. Maybe you know, uh, if something scandalous is going on in your, in your community or whatever. Um, and so these are things I was thinking about, you know, because because uh, I tell stories. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> and I like them and I, and I don't just tell them, I listen to them, I enjoy them. I, I think they're vital, maybe the most vital currency we have to share, right? Uh, there's a line in um, uh, when we're uh, uh, going to take the Eucharist in Catholic Church uh, in, in the post-Vatican II, um, cat, uh, not catechism, but the uh, ritual uh, where they sing, we come to... We come to share our story. We come to break the bread. We come to know our rising from the dead. I think it's just so intense the way that a lot of uh, post-Vatican II uh, services, I can't think of the word for what the whole thing is called, <laughs> but the, the, for the not the ritual, but uh, but uh, uh, man, why is that word escaping me right now? But the centering of, of our story, of there being a story, a resurrection story, right? All those stories, those are ways we understand the world, right? And so there's a big responsibility how you frame those stories because, because there will be consequences to the lessons you may even internalize before you've stated them outright when you accept a story, right? Yeah, along those lines, you bring up River's Edge. Uh, yes. You know, set in, in, which was in Milpitas. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious because I, I I grew up watching that movie and I always loved that movie. And movie. yeah, and I, I, so I loved that you were bringing it up, but I'm wondering, like, since you spent time in California around that time, was this a story that, you know, was part of the myths that you grew up with? And was that sort of a jumping off point for you setting the book in Milpitas? Well, noting you finished the book, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So chapter seven, part seven, the, the me that's supposed to be me, that's really me. I lived in Milpitas. Um, right. I lived in Milpitas in 75, 74, 75. Um, so that hadn't happened yet. Um, my first exposure to the story was after we had moved and we'd been in Claremont for three or four years. And I saw a story in the LA Times about a murder in Milpitas. And I was like, whoa, I yeah. used to live there. You know. And the thing is, there's murders in Southern California all the time. Milpitas was tiny. You know, um, and it had been a real backwater. Um, now, of course, it's part of Silicon Valley, a big part, you know, um, but it was I have a history of it. Uh, uh, I mean, this was a this was a railroad stop. Right. And, uh, and it, it only started getting big. And like, I think, 69 was when the Ford uh, when Ford built a plant there. And then it becomes starts to become a bigger satellite of San Jose. Before that, it was really like a like, like a ranch town railroad stop. Right. And uh, so. Uh, but yeah, so I read that story and it sounded uh, it sounded gruesome. But I was around, as I say, on part seven when the movie came out. It was a big deal, right? That was uh, Crispin Glover's first thing. Everybody was talking about his performance in it. It was really you know, it's very fine performance. Everybody, I mean, he took a, a his own path right through through uh, uh, through being an actor. But at that time, I think everybody was like, oh, this is the sort of performance that then opens onto a certain kind of career, you know, uh, and. Uh, and so, yeah, and the moral also, I think I say as much in, in part seven that this was a time uh, where moral panics were in ascent, you know, uh, when it was a year or two before McMart McMartin in Southern California, right? And, uh, and also the PMRC was in the news and moral panics are things, are historical cycles, they happen, right? And, um, and, and this was a time of, of, of ascending moral panic in response, I think, to several liberation movements actually having found some purchase with the broader public. A moral panic is a good way to get some of those under control. Right? <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so River's Edge was in, in some senses a moral panic movie about, you know, the, the youth, 
uh, have no conscience, right? The youth, the youth will will cover up a murder just because just because they're afraid. You know, the actual story of River's Edge is not that story at all. The stuff mm-hmm. that ha- actually happened in Milpitas is a very different story uh, from the one in the movie. The one in the movie is, is sort of like your Kitty Genovese framing a story for a certain sort of moral instruction, you know? Yeah, and so I guess like talking about this notion of place, uh, there's a tension in the book between like deeply knowing a place you're familiar with and the difficulty of knowing a place you're unfamiliar with. And so I guess like, uh, how do you grapple with that tension as a writer, like trying to convey things to an audience? Are you trying to share something unknowable? If so, like, how do you begin to do that? Well, it's one reason I have said everything I've written so far uh, largely in places that I lived or right next to places where I mm-hmm. lived, right? Um, I've, I've said this uh, before, but um, when you're a young writer, you constantly hear that you should write what you know, right? And if you're a young writer like me, you resent that. It's like, <laughs> I don't know anything. I'm 13, right? And I haven't done anything. What I'm supposed to write about being 13? How boring is that? I don't want to write about that, you know. I, and, uh, and King this has is... similar writing advice in his on writing book. You know, he says he says write what you know can only take you so far. He's like, if people only wrote what they knew, we wouldn't get sci-fi novels and stuff like that. It's you know? true, but the thing is, even then, you are writing what you know in terms of your values, right? Sure. And, yeah. and in terms of the types of characters you met, if you haven't ever met a bully, you probably shouldn't try and write one. You yeah. know, now the likelihood that you haven't is slim. Right. Um, but as far as writing, you know, I mean, it's true about science fiction, but when you're writing a place, I'm not going to set anything uh, in, you know, uh, where haven't I been? Um, well, in, in, in Durban, right? Because <laughs> I haven't been, you know, I don't, I, I could look at pictures and stuff, but, but the very least I want to do before I write a place is, is have visited it, right? And probably better if I've spent a couple of weeks there, you know, or some of your childhood. And if it's your childhood, then you do have a connection to the streets and stuff like that. You know, you, you have several connections and stuff like that is, is, is worth considering. And it's part of what the book is about is like, you know, is, is, you know, how much stake one has in, 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 in a game, you know, how much, how much stake you have in the story you mm-hmm. tell. Um, Cause if you're writing a place, I mean, not to, not to be the 9 millionth person calling out Truman Capote for in cold blood, but if you go down to Kansas and you've never been to Kansas and you're from a completely different society, right? Um, what can you really tell me about Kansas, right? You can tell me your outsider's perspective, but you don't understand what it was like for the people who were here, you know, and you have that responsibility to not be the outsider describing things in outsider terms. Right. I think, and I think that's important. You know, I mean, I just, that's something I think that dates back to being not from LA, but from the inland where mm-hmm. we sort of don't count. The bands don't come to our town. They come to LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you sort of feel like a backwater, even though you're, a, you know, it's an affluent backwater. It's Claremont, right? There's five colleges there, but, uh, but you always sort of feel like you're on the edges and stuff. You're literally the last town in LA County before it becomes, uh, yeah, San Bernardino County. I mean, this is super basic journalism, right? That you, you you should understand things in the terms, you know, of of the place itself instead of your outsider perspective, which has its own value, but I think it's a secondary value most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To stay on place for a second, the way that you convey the attachments that people form to their places and how they live through them. I'm thinking of the teens and I'm thinking of the the teacher. Um, they're so evocative. And I just wonder <laughs> what your thoughts are or what draws you to the conceit of castle doctrine in this book? Because there are so many moments where someone's sanctum is breached yeah. and it's this huge violation. Well, that was the, that was the, motivating, uh, the motivating concept, hearing about it somewhere and going, oh, that's kind of interesting. 
and I, you know, I read 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I read Mallory's Mort d'Artour and, uh, and you know, the, I, I just love that there's a thing called castle doctrine that, that that's kind of based on this, you know, this uh, hoary old chestnut that your home is your castle. Well, I mean, yes and no. Right? <laughs> and so uh, it, it, the castle there, there's usually not a castle next door to the castle, right? But your home is in a neighborhood, right? It's like next to other people. So there's so many very important distinctions between a home and a castle. And I heard some about this somewhere. I think I read that the NRA was using it, was weaponizing it uh, to justify, you know, people murdering somebody who stepped on their front lawn, you know, usually a white person murdering a black person who stepped on their front lawn and, uh, and using castle doctrine as this, you know, the idea that you just have this right to murder people who come to your castle. So I started researching it. But as I did, I also, oh, I should say, I'm trying to not use the word research because what I did was look up shit on the internet, right? <laughs> and, and that, my friends, is not research under sure. any circumstances. Until you're buying books and going to the library and getting down in them, we are not doing research, right? <laughs> and I'm trying not to call it that, even though I'm in the habit of it like the rest. Oh, yeah, I researched it. No, you used Google. And, and that's not research. <laughs> so, uh, but uh I mean, I just say that because of all these people who are doing their own research on ivermectin and so forth. It's like there is actually, the internet is in fact a useful research tool, but it's not, if it's your sole research tool, then it's some pretty spare research, right? So, uh, and that's how I feel for myself. So I bought a bunch of books, right? Mm -hmm. About, uh, you know, uh, used books about castles and kings and stuff like that. And the thing I learned, and this played, this comes to have a very defining thing and sort of the, the bigger theme of the book is that, and I've been doing the shtick a lot, uh, but I really like it. Um, when I mention King Arthur to you, right, where does he live and when? Can you tell me? Uh, he lives in a castle. Big castle. And, right. In what country? Medieval. In Arthurian England? England. Okay, so medieval, right, with the 1000s, 1100s, 1200s, 900s? They're all the same. You're proving your point. <laughs> so, well, no, that's not the thing is. The, the point is this, is that it's probably before the 1100s, because we know a fair bit about that history. We know by then the names of the families that were in the castles and everything. Arthur's supposed to be the older, the, 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 this, this previous England. But what I learned was that, in point of fact, the castle is almost certainly a Norman import to England. Mm -hmm. right? It's from France. Okay. The English prior to the Norman invasion are a very different English than the English that we come to know as the English who have courts and castles and all this kind of thing. Uh, they have thanes, they have chieftains, right? But they sure don't have castles. Mm -hmm. And that means that Arthur's castle, well, there was a historical Arthur who probably lived in Wales, I think in the seventh century maybe, but there's no way he had a castle, right? Yeah. All that is retconning of a later tradition onto onto somebody who was probably a figure, right? A known figure to some people way way out in Wales, right? Um, which to conflate Wales with sort of the England that we think of as Camelot is its own whole thing, right? And and so I was really interested by that, right? It's like that, that when you picture Arthur in his castle, that's not Arthur and that's not his castle. Right? <laughs> that's, uh, uh, and I was really interested by that, right? Yeah. Uh, speaking of, you know, quote unquote research, it seems like uh, you have, I, I, I'd say Gage is a character who feels very real in the terms of how he does his own research and his own process. He mentions all the time that he has a process. And I guess I'm curious, like, 
how did you sort of tap into, uh, you know, the thinking of a true crime writer? I know you've been reading this stuff for a long time, but did you talk to anybody uh, or, you know, did you Google it? So I asked myself what I would do was the first thing I did. Like I thought, well, what if this was you? What if you're writing this book? Uh, What, um, sorry, I'm uh, out here at the basketball. (laughs) Uh, Helps again, I think. Uh, So, uh, so I thought to myself, what would I do if I'm in his shoes? How am I learning about this stuff? And I did think what I was just talking about is like, well, I want primary texts, as many primary texts as I could, is what would get me close to something. And then I sort of, I, I also knew to make him an interesting character, he has to be, you know, he has to have something that sets him apart from the field, right? Otherwise, that's its own part of the book. And I said, well, I'm just, I'm one true crime writer among many, and what I do is not that different from my peers. That is an interesting idea for a book to me, but it's also like, that's just a different book to write. If, if the whole, if part of the point is, I am not special and I'm not different from my peers, much harder sell as a book, I have to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the, to interest the public in, here's a book with some people who are not special in any real way, right? Uh, <laughs> I love this idea. And I think actually that, uh, what's her name, Gilead? Um, is it Marilyn Robinson or am I? Yes, Marilyn Robinson. Yeah. I think one of the things she's doing is saying, here's some people who are people, right? You know, uh, the guy who wrote Stoner is the same sort of thing. And I like that, but it also is not really what I'm, what I'm doing at this point. Right. And so, so I, so I had to come up with some idea for a method that makes him different and weird, you know, in some way that that, that sets him apart. And, uh, and I didn't really, I mean, when I say I thought about that, I'm thinking, well, my fingers are clacking on the, on the, on the laptop or on the desktop like i'm just typing away and sort of ad-libbing and say well i started my book my new book today and the way i do this is and then i make something up right and it's like it's like doing improv comedy or something where i just you know i just say something and i see if that works and there may have been a couple of earlier processes that i don't remember because once i got into his idea i was like well maybe he moves into the house ah that's a good idea (laughs) what if he's always been doing that Mm -hmm. i like it you know and so so you sort of run it, it really I, I had the good fortune of working with the people at Second City a time or two, and you learn a lot about storytelling from people who are doing it in real time, you know, yeah. uh, and it, doing this marathon they do where they do 24 hours of improv and they do it over and over again. They do it when they're completely exhausted and they trade right in. They walk in and they go, man, I started shucking shrimp last week and I'm already tired of it. And you go, <laughs> where did, how did you come up with that premise? Well, I don't know. It just came into my mind. It's like, that's very inspiring to work with those people uh, even for a day or two and sort of go that is what storytelling is, is you just sort of say you know it's as if i walked out here and go i'd love to talk about the book but i'm actually being recruited by the hornets and uh and i, and I have to practice you know <laughs> it's like well that's a whole story right and the story is just based on the fact that i have a basketball in my hand you know so it's funny that you're talking about using improvisational methods to come up with someone who has such ingrained rituals and like routine. Yeah. Do you yeah. have do you have your own like when you get ready to write, even if it's environmental, do you have any rituals or routine? You know, I try to sometimes because I, I have an office and uh and I do have some stuff that I sort of do to set the table is all the lights and incense, you know. Uh, but that's mainly to make the room smell nice. It's not like I have the incense. Um, you know, I, uh, I was actually had, um, was it for this book, Universal Harvester, I had a bunch of gaming dice that I was setting up and taking a picture of the dice every day uh, <laughs> on the desk, you know. Uh, but uh, but I don't have any, I, I'm, 
given how much it would probably please me to have some reliable ritual. I don't have mm -hmm. one who's like, oh, I do this and then I write. In part because I write anywhere. You know, I, I write, uh, I like to go to the office, but then often I find just as you're getting going, it's time to go get kids from school or whatever. And, uh, and then some point after dinner, you go, oh, wow. If you're in the middle of a book, you go, wait, wait, what if this? And then I write it on a, there's a blackboard in the kitchen that I can write an idea on. And, uh, and so I, I do a lot of stuff in the notes app in my phone. Sometimes while driving, you open that up and dictate like, what if this happens? What if, what if this is the deal? So. That's great. I know a friend who has done a whole novel through dictation. That's <laughs> she's, cool. just, she's trying to write it down now, but I'm like, wow, I could never. <laughs> um, wow. I, I hope she can find an intern or something. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, one of the things I thought was so cool was the shift in POVs and perspectives. Uh, like, you know, you start with this true crime writer. And I think, you know, when you read a true crime book, as much as like, this writer is trying to capture all of these different characters, we always feel like we're coming from this one perspective. And I think one right. of the great subversions is and powers is that it sort of takes the story away from the true crime writer, you know, Gage yes. in this case. So like, when did that, like, when did that inspiration hit you? Was that something you intended from the beginning to subvert that perspective? So actually that predates even knowing what the book is about. Gotcha. Um, because I knew I wanted to write a big book. That was one of the things I wanted to do was challenge myself to, to see what more happens. Because both my previous books, you know, Universal Harvester is kind of a quartet um, and has, has some perspective games that go on. But it is one, you know, it's one story with a few woven through it, right? Uh, and the big surprise of it is, is what story that turns out to be, right? Who and who's, right? But and Wolf White Van is is a backwards a backwards spiral, right? That goes spirals back to a single moment, right? Um, and I was reading some bigger books and thinking, you know, well, bigger books sort of have this leisure of of examining many stories and seeing how they inform one another. So I came up with a structure, uh, and and that was one of the first things I did was to say, what's this? What's the structure? It used to, it was up here on the wall. This is that blackboard I was talking to you about. Um, and, and there was a, there was a thing, it's been erased. It was erased for the new year once the book is published, but, but, it, uh, but, uh, but I settled on a seven structure, right? And then I immediately looked at that and I said, well, that makes for a good mirror possibility. One and seven are mirrors, two and six are mirrors, three and five are mirrors, and four has got to be something stands all by itself, right? So this is an abstract idea I had. And then I had to populate that idea, right? And I thought, well, how, how will you make one and seven and two and six and three and five sort of, how do you complicate that instead of just saying, well, here's the continuation of that. Because I have a mm -hmm. fair number of books that are like, once they pick up the thread, it's just picking up the thread. And I want it to be complicated in some way because that's who I am. So, so that's when I thought, what if, what if, what if? One and seven are the first person, two and six are the second person, three and five are the third person, and then four is whatever, right? I'll figure out four when I get there, right? And so, so I liked that idea a lot. That was all I knew. And in point of fact, in the writing of the book, a lot of changes took place, especially to part five, which originally was just a continuation of part three. It was all the chapters were in the third person uh, and and had all the subheaders that are in part three and so forth, and getting the idea to do those biographical sketches of Seth and Angela and Derek, um, uh, Seth, Angela, Derek, who am I who am I leaving out? Damn it! Oh, uh, Alex, <laughs> Alex, oh, of course. How can I forget Alex? It's the best one. Um, but uh, 
But yeah, so getting that idea came very late after about 40,000 words that were thrown away of the original part five, right? Wow. Um, but that, I mean, that was a big, a big re revelation to me. It was like, oh, okay, so yeah. So, so then if part two is in the second person and it's this book he wrote, part two is in the second person and the original idea for, had, for that was just the letter from her. I thought, no, it's more compelling if he's addressing her describing the letter that she wrote, then you have the second person sort of redoubling on itself in an interesting way uh, right. or hopefully interesting way. And so, uh, so yeah, so, so, and that was very pleasing to me because I'm a literary fiction guy and I want to argue that, that that stuff isn't, you know, doing stuff that's complicated has a bad rep for being boring. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, there's a notion that if it's, that if it starts, it begins in an abstraction or a, or a conceit that, that it somehow lacks the, the reality or the groundedness of something else. But I think so many of the great things we enjoy start as, as fanciful little challenges like that. You know, I suspect most Beatles songs start as like, well, let's do one in E minor. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and then, well, they have to be good at what they do. So they do some, you know, I, I don't know if yesterday's an E minor or A minor, but uh, I assume it's one of those, but, uh, but yeah. So, so I had this formal idea and I had this suspicion that beginning with a structure is sort of what I do because Wolf and White Van starts with the idea to tell it backwards and Universal Harvester um, started with this idea of trying to replicate a certain type of island way that island people talk when they get together after not having seen each other in a while. And that was a whole, so to me, it's like starting points. Uh, it's been fruitful for me to have a starting point that's fairly, if not, if not unambitious, not necessarily that connected to what's gonna wind up populating the, the world that you sort of stipulate. Yeah. Um, so one of the things our listeners are always looking for is more modern horror. Uh, and so obviously we've been recommending this book to them, but I'm curious, is, are there any modern horror authors or even just genre writers that you're a big fan of that you think, you know, you would recommend to our listeners? Um, E.A. Petriconi. Okay. Uh, is, do you know uh, that name? I, I'm, I'm always, uh, I, is that... Is that who wrote We the Girls Who Did Not Make It? I'm trying to remember. I think that is. Um, I'm so, do you, do you know who I'm talking about? I don't. Uh, Let me look. It's, it's a stunning story. I should totally remember the author's name. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yay, yeah, Petroconi, We the Girls That Did Not Make It. Yeah. Oh, my friend, you are in for a treat when you read that story. I, uh, I, do, I do that with her. So, uh, uh, it's a name that I learned in the same, same week as I think I learned of Cassandra Kaw, who I think is also good. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, but, uh, uh, but that Petriconi story, I mean, that, that, that'll curl your toes. That, that, that thing is remarkable. Um, and I think Petriconi is a major talent. Um, I don't know what they're up to, uh, cause I don't really keep up. Uh, yeah. but that's the, that's the one is like, I, I shared that story on Twitter when I first read it. And it's, uh, uh, I mean, it's really, you will remember this conversation. This is a, that, that's a, a story I'll knock you over. <laughs> so, uh, is it a short, it's a short story. Yeah, it's very short. It's, it's, oh my it, gosh! It won't, it won't take Love you that you're recommending short stories. So, well, I mean, I started wanting to write short stories when I was a kid. I always, I, uh, I, I don't think I ever got good at the form, but, uh, uh, but yeah, that used to be my lookout. Um, that's mainly. I mean, what have I been reading? I'm reading Tolstoy right now. Um, before that, I'm reading this guy, um, Voladine. Antoine Voladine, his stuff is horror adjacent. He's a French writer who all his works take place in the same fictional universe. And he's been doing this for 
10 or 20 years. Um, and that's not his real name. Um, and he writes under a number of other heteronyms, right? Uh, Manuela Drager is Antoine Valadin. Uh, 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 Lutz Basman, something like that, is, is Valadin. Um, he's got a number of different names uh, that he writes under, uh, all transparently, but they have their own characters within the fictional universe, right? This is kind of like Fernando Pessoa, but it's considerably more uh, uh, single-minded insofar as all of these writers are in prison, right, in the future, right? Uh, and the books that they are writing are the texts that they are telling one another through the vents of the prison system. And all this was a long time ago. None of them were alive anymore. Um, and, and they may all be, in fact, the dream of the last living uh, man, uh, this uh, in Radiant Terminus, that's sort of the, uh, a good one to start with, um, uh, that's kind of spelled out, the Solovier character. Uh, so all this is, it's horror adjacent, and it's plenty horrific. It's not genre horrors, uh, per right. se, but but, uh, right. but is who, I read four of his books in the past couple months, and I that's not normally something I do. Mm. Uh, I, like, I keep... I'm a butterfly. I flip from from writer to writer, but but Volodyne, I, I have to read as much of his stuff translated into English as I can. So. Yeah, very cool. Mel, did you have any last questions? Gosh, I don't. I don't think so. I was going to ask you about what you think about the nature of truth and the unknowability of other people's stories, and pretty big. Uh, that's that's getting a little heady, but well, <laughs> I feel like we seat. touched on. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll lay this one out for you. It'll take about half an hour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the thing is. So what? One thing that's interesting to me about that question, though, is like it is apparent that there are multiple strains of truth and there's two sides to any story and so on and so forth. And also that that idea can be weaponized by bad people and bad uh, 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 apparatuses, you know, uh, for their benefit, right? Uh, and so you want to avoid that. It's like, I think in many cases, the truth is fairly clear, right? Uh, and, uh, but it's also the case that, you know, when someone is telling a story, the probability is that they have some investment in that story, right? Uh, and that, that neutrality is, I mean, here's the thing. Fox News's whole project is to persuade you that neutrality is an illusion, right? Yeah. That, that journalistic neutrality doesn't actually exist, right? And therefore, you know, and then they fancy themselves as calling out the hypocrisy of the, uh, of, of the purportedly neutral, right? And then on my side of the political spectrum, people do that also, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the New York Times, it purports to be neutral, but in fact, it's serving the interests of the state. And I'm not uh, uh, immune to or denying, you know, that, that uh, the press of any given country is likely to be reinforcing the values of, of that country and trying to, trying to sort of further that country's own perceived interests, right? Um, but at the same time, I think over milking that cow, right? leads you to sort of, uh, uh, here, let me make some enemies. Uh, <laughs> Do it. Turns you into Gr Glenn Greenwald, right? Yeah. And yeah. Glenn Greenwald is out there defending Putin all day because he doesn't like the people who are angry at Putin. Yeah. <laughs> so and the thing is, he begins with the noble impulse of going, who's telling the story? What do they have to benefit? Uh, Tucker Carlson's doing this too. Uh, by saying, you know, he, he posed the question, why do they want you to hate Vladimir Putin? Well, one, 
that's an in, that's a dishonest framing. Who are they? Right? <laughs> and, right. and you know, when most of these people are asking that question, what they mean is the Jews, right? It's like it's a bunch of anti-Semites, but they want you to think this, right? It's, right. it's like it's, this is one of the oldest anti-Semitic tools in the book is to posit mm-hmm. this big they. Surprise, surprise! It turns out to be a marginalized ethnic group, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but uh, but at the same time, you know, that springs from something we all suspect. Even it's one of the breaks you have with your own childhood, right? Is when you go, wait a minute, they told me that Santa existed, right? And why did they want to tell me that, right? Which I think remains a valid question, actually. It's like, why wouldn't you want your children to know once a year I buy you a bunch of presents, (laughs) you know? Because I love to do that, because I can. You know, it's a great way for me to express that that I'm rich in life somehow, you know, yeah. rich rich enough to buy you a bunch of stuff and you're my child. And so I want to do that. Why do we want that to be a magic person? That's an interesting thing, you know, but, uh, but, but yeah, but I think often the truth is, is fairly simple, you know, uh, and is, is often simpler than we want to, than we want to complicate it. And that, that people often have a fair amount of investment in the complication of, of some basic truths, you know, uh, but, but I think also that these, these propositions are always going to be in tension, right? And especially Americans do not want to sit with tension like that. They don't want to oh, say, we hate it. either either stories are good or they're bad, John. Mm-hmm. And say, well, yeah. no, they're great. They're all great. <laughs> all stories are fantastic stories. It's a question of what they do out there in the world that is, the, that is, the, that is another question you have to sit with as you enjoy them, right? Mm-hmm. Wow, great answer. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Well, this was this was amazing. Thank you so much for chatting with us, John. This oh, my pleasure. Absolutely awesome. And uh, if you read any more Stephen King, let us know. Uh, we have many. Yeah, I totally. I have a few more hanging around. I mean, I keep meaning to to assail the the book of Salem's Lot and also the Stand, but uh, but those oh, are both oh, great. Yeah, they're very. <laughs> the Stand is a big one, though, right? They're huge. Oh, yeah. They're huge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things like right now, I'm doing War and Peace. Neither one of them is longer than War and Peace. So. Yeah, that's which, true. Which, by the way, though, if you've never thought about assailing one piece, it is an eminently readable book. I love it. it. I, yeah. I read it in college. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge. Are you fan doing of one of those the read-alongs where uh, they no. were doing a couple of those on Twitter, and that was a good way to get into it? <laughs> no, I started in 2011. I got through about 600 pages of it, and then in the middle of that, we toured Europe, and I took it with me on the plane, right? Which is very funny to be big enough, bringing out your big war and peace on the plane, right? So, <laughs> but I also visited my dad and when you get jet lag, if you're reading a big long book, you miss a day or two because you're just too messed up in the head to read, you know, and, and you got too much going on. And it's a book you don't, you do any Russian novel, I think, especially from the 19th 20th century, you don't want to have, you don't want to miss two days because right. there's a lot of characters to keep track of, right? And if you pick it back up after a week, you go, I don't, remember any of this i don't know what it was you know and so so yeah so i left a bookmark in it and then two weeks ago as i was finishing a valadine book i was like it was time for something else and i'm looking through you know right as i'm about to finish a book i start going through my bookshelves um going ooh, what's next what's next you know and and uh and i said there's more in peace what if i what if i did that it's like god i got pretty far in it so well no i'm not gonna do that and my wife said yes you are now it's in your head right now you <laughs> once, once you've had that conversation even if you don't, you're gonna you're gonna leave it out on the table and, and keep looking at it longingly. <laughs> and so I went, you know, you're right. Let me do what I already know I'm gonna do <laughs> and, and dive in. So you read trying to do at least like you just know that it's gonna kind of cement itself like in your literary language. Like I still like I the Dostoevsky I've read, I feel like I quote and I reference and I mention more than any other like like I don't know classic yeah. literature that I've read. 
It just you should read that article I mentioned that's in the Sunday New York Times book review about this, about his sources, about the crime, I think, that inspires him to write that. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, I don't know that I'll get around to the book, but the article is, is, is interesting. And it's especially interesting if you're spending most of your waking hours thinking about Russian writers. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. This is a blast, John. Uh, so fun. I'm actually seeing you uh, in Chicago uh, oh, cool. in May. So I'm very stoked for that. Should I will be see you there. Yeah, most definitely. Well, uh, have a good day. Thank you so much. And, Thank you. Uh, a real pleasure. Yeah. Thanks absolutely. so much. We loved the book. We've been talking Our about this book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad you did. Like I say, I mean, it's like, I. it's one way in which I, you know, subscribe to what I consider a Dickensian Stephen King point of view is like your book should be fun to read, right? Yes. Even if it's getting heavy, it should be, the, it, it, you know, I mean, I also am American, so I want it to be emotional, right? It's yeah. like, it's sort of, I often want to free myself from that. And then it's like, I know that I shouldn't say out loud lest my, lest my editor get like, send a team to John's house. He's talking about, he's talking again about writing like a continental European, taking the emotions out of it. <laughs> No, it's a great, it's like a cerebral clip. Like, I don't know. There's just something, uh, I, you know, we did it over, I did it over the course of like three days. Couldn't put it down, even though it was like getting so deep. And uh, ah, I'm so glad. Thank you. Thank you very <laughs> much. I really appreciate that. It was one that I put down next to my wife and I, like, I just finished it when I was sitting next to her and was like, going to be, going to be turning over that one for a while. So. <laughs> but you know, to, to conclude on a note about what we were talking about, there were a couple of people talking about it on Twitter yesterday. And uh, and somebody said, oh, this sounds sounds great. I, I, I just started that Devil House. I'm, I'm reading it now and I'm, I'm enjoying it. And my cursor hovered over their bio. Right. And the bio said grieving mom. Right. Mm. And I, I thought, oh, this book's going to get into some place that if that's part of who you consider yourself, mm -hmm. I want you to know. Yeah. <laughs> you know I, I reached out. I said, hey, I, I, said, I need you to understand something something that you're specifically talking about here on your feed. Cause I had a look It's like, this is a person experiencing some stuff, you know? And, and, uh, and they said, well, thanks for the warning. I'm, I'm cool. <laughs> like, yeah. but, it, but it was interesting because it made me think about the responsibility. If I'm telling a story about somebody whose son got murdered, well, people's sons get murdered. Yeah. Right. That's the thing that happens to some people's sons. Right. And those people, when they pick up a book, probably hope not to discover that the book is foregrounding you know, for its own purposes, you know, uh, and you could say for the purposes of the author, being the author, I want to make that bigger than it is, right? I want yeah. to say, well, no, no, it's for the book. It's not for me, right? But that's easy for me to say. <laughs> so it's convenient for me to say, right? Uh, and those are the questions the book is in fact asking with this, but you can't escape from the fact that in order to tell the good story, you're going to have to make up a story that is somebody's you know, unless you are setting it in a totally fictional universe and, and changing all the terms, which is how Le Guin, I think, uh, deals with this. Uh, you know, it's like nobody reads Le Guin's story and like, well, you inadvertently told my story. <laughs> Except they kind of do, right? That's, the, that's <laughs> the beauty of what she's doing is like, then you recognize your own story in, you know, in a, in a planet where, where, you know, where everybody is both genders. <laughs> so, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, that's the, the, I mean, she's a genius, right? So, uh, but, uh, but yeah, just some, some closing thoughts there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think you do it beautifully because it honors complexity at every turn. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. I hope so. Yeah, cool. Well, have a good day, John. And uh, we can't wait, to, can't wait to read what you do next. So. All right. Yeah, I got some ideas kicking around. I'll, I'll Great. Be in touch. <laughs> Thanks, John. Bye. Thanks. Good night. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody.
This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs> <laughs>